Hi everyone, my name is Steve Tudor and welcome to the Friday Show. It's a show that's read all of the cast report this week, but was left somewhat underwhelmed. Where was the fight scene? Where was the love interest? There wasn't even a twist. Most disappointing of all, the villain, UEFA, was inept and clearly a rip-off of Spectre from James Bond. We give it 3 out of 10 and we'll stick to Jack Reacher in the future. Today though, we're not talking about cast and only slightly about Manchester City. Today we're looking back on the 2019-20 Premier League season. It's a huge topic, so we felt we needed to draft in two of the very best football writers around to do it justice. Thankfully, we succeeded. Firstly, making a very welcome return to the show, we have a brilliant and lovely Harry DeCosmo. Hi mate, how's tricks? Hi Steve, I'm really good, thank you. Thanks very much for having me back on. Absolutely, our pleasure mate. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, We also have a debutant today, the equally brilliant and lovely Ryan Baldy. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for heading in. How's it going, mate? Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, more than welcome, mate. It's good to have you both on. It really is. Um, well, as stated, this is a huge topic, so let's just dive straight into it. Um, in 2018-19, only one point separated Manchester City and Liverpool. This year, the Reds romped home easily with 18 points difference. Ryan, was this a case of Liverpool kicking on or did City regress? I think when you look at the fact that City are 17 points worse off than they were the year before, um, that's that's the biggest factor, I think, the regression Mm. that City have experienced and and the the troubles they've had. Liverpool have maintained, which is um, impressive enough as it is. They're there at 97 points before. They've finished on 99 now, so they're they're pretty much where they were, um, which is an incredible achievement in in and of itself uh, to maintain that level across two seasons, something that City did the year before. Um, I think if anything, Liverpool, they're, they're probably slightly less entertaining this year. I don't think the front three were quite as electric, they were, yeah. but they were really solid um, as a unit. And they, but I think they were more ruthless. I think the year before, um, they smelled blood in the water a couple of times, but couldn't quite capitalise. Uh, this year, this season, their focus, just did, their focus didn't waver at any point. Um, you never really got the impression that they were going to... You know, I think there was a, a draw against Everton last year or something like that that really cost them. You, you never really got the, the impression that they were going to drop any silly points and get themselves in any trouble. Uh, Harry, Ryan summed it up pretty much perfect there, but what gets me is that City scored 17 more goals than Liverpool. They kept more clean sheets. They won by a five-goal margin or more on seven occasions. Liverpool didn't manage that once, yet the Reds finished 18 points clear. That doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> I know what you mean, um, and I, I agree with what Ryan was saying. I think that Liverpool have been that bit more ruthless than they have than they were before. I think City obviously um, were maybe that little bit, you know, in certain games, maybe not as not as sharp as they have been. I mean, you just mentioned they still incredibly sharp, but the standards they set in the last two years were just so high. It's almost mm. it's it's almost impossible to last to keep that going. And I've written a piece on this. Hopefully, it'll be up soon about specifically talking about um, Leroy Sané's exit, but it was more to do with what Sané was bringing and what uh, was Sterling up front in the in the season, in the Centurion season, particularly with the stretching of the pitch and tipping the pitch almost with the with the in with the, in terms of getting the defenders out of position and getting through those low blocks. I don't think that the, without Sané up front and that happening as often, that was quite a key factor. Obviously. Laporte being injured at the start of the season and not replacing company was also another factor. These are all just little things that can all add up. And uh, that and Liverpool just being ultra-focused and just getting the job done, not worrying so much about how they did it and whatever. Because I, I, I honestly think Liverpool were better last season that, that, you know, to watch certainly than they have been this year. But 
but I, yeah, I think just I, I think it's a mixture of both. To answer the the original question, mm. you know, Man City, in the, they were the best team I've ever seen in in seventeen, eighteen, eighteen, nineteen as well, but seventeen, eighteen, hundred points. But what I what they, they were doing the same thing Liverpool did this year, and just to, in terms of just winning all the games, like they had that that great winning run that ended at Palace, that was a European equaling or bettering uh, yeah. run. I can't remember. Um, and they every every one of those games they beat the opposition into submission even before they you know they kicked the kicked the ball they were just the, the opposition just just gave up they just thought well we'll just get through this game and 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 go from there whereas Liverpool you know I always felt that there was a possibility that Liverpool could draw a game or or, or even lose a game at different times this season they just were ruthless enough to just get through it whereas that you know Man City were just breathtaking in. In particularly seventeen eighteen, I just don't think it's 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 possible to really maintain that level with the work rate that Guardiola puts into his teams for for, for three years without refreshing it completely in the way that they did in the transfer window before that season. You know, they only bought Mares and Rodri and Cancelo, so it's pretty much the same squad for three years. Eventually, things levels are naturally going to drop, and I think this year they need to, despite having sold Sane, they need to really. You know, give that squad a rebound if they if they want to close that gap. I think. Yeah, I mean, the Sane kind of injury was almost symbolic in a way, um, occurring you know on the first game of the season, the Community Shield, and against Liverpool, um, and so much focus was put, rightly so, on our defence. But yeah, he cost us immeasurably. You know, we missed him so much. Um, okay, I mean, the, the kind of nature of this part is we're going to move our way down the table. So looking at the top four spots. Um, all the focus really goes on to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Frank Lampard. Um, they've both received a lot of praise recently for securing top four spots for their respective clubs. But I've also seen some kind of reaction to that praise with people saying kind of, you know, well, let's get this into perspective. You know, they've both had very good squads at their disposal. How impressive have they both been, Ryan? Um, I think... When you take the season as a whole, uh, these are two of the four richest clubs in the country. Um, I, I'm pretty sure they're two of the four highest wage bills. Um, both both have has some form of adversity this season. I think there was a lot going against Solskjaer when he, when he took over and then things kind of went south um, after his initial early burst and he did well to rescue it. And obviously with, with Chelsea, uh, they had the inability to for, for Lampard to make any of his own signings for... Uh, that first transfer window, but I think on the whole, it's they've probably just about hit par really when when, when you think about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, they've both had up and down seasons. It's been a bit of a roller coaster for them. Um, United in particular finished strongly. Chelsea finished strongly in the end as well, getting that win over Wolves to secure their place and also making it through to the cup final. Um, so they've both ended on highs, which has given them that that kind of feeling of a real success of the season. But I think uh, when we look at it, uh, uh, take a step back and analyse what's really you know what's gone on and what they were up against. I think they're just about hit par. Well, Harry, have you been surprised by either of them? Uh, not really, as I say. It's right. It's probably about par. Um, with Lampard in particular, I think he seems to be getting a lot of credit, and he just deserves certain amount of credit given what he, he inherited the transfer ban and and Hazard and going and all that sort of stuff, and you know, giving the young players a chance and all that. But you know, let's not forget that the Chelsea. I think they finished third last year and won the Europa League. So yeah. to say that to win the FA Cup and finish third is this mass or, or fourth or whatever they did. I think they finished fourth, didn't they? That is an immaculate season. When you know, in comparison, it, it still technically works, if, especially if they don't win at the weekend. So, 
So I, I, I do sort of see both sides of the Lampard thing. Solskjaer, I put on Twitter, I think, the other week, saying that I think he's done brilliantly to get him to a point, but I, there's still something about him that says to me that he he can't take them to the next level. And yeah, having absolutely. said that, you know, he, I, there's just something, you know, having said that, they 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 were in the middle of a fantastic run and then they let that slip in the FA Cup against Chelsea. But um, I mean, he he's he's been helped by the sign of, Bernard, of, of, of Bruno Fernandez, who's just been fantastic, you know. But I, I do genuinely think that there's something missing with Solskjaer. I don't quite know what it is, but I just think that they need whoever comes in after him will have will have the best opportunity to make <laughs> Manchester United fantastic because of the work he's done. Yeah. So there's just something about him, him that suggests to me that he isn't a person to do that. And if you ask me what that is, I probably couldn't tell you. And that's what's really strange. But, you know, t- so so both of them, I think, you know, it, they, they did hit about par. And, and the top four race, let's be fair, I mean, Bulls were in there, Sheffield United were in there, Leicester were in there. They're, they're three teams that that really nobody expected to to, to really, re- you know, to, to be in there all season. and. So, in that regard, you have to say it's par because you, they, they, those clubs should be beating Wolves and yeah. Sheffield United, particularly in Leicester. They're good teams, but they're, they're nowhere. They shouldn't be anywhere near what, what because of what Chelsea have in their squad and now can spend, and what Manchester United have in their squad and can spend. They, they, there shouldn't really be any comparison. So, I think you should dial down the sort of miraculous season sort of angle that people seem to be going with the pair of them. To be honest. Yeah, I mean the reason I, I laughed when you were talking about Solskjaer is because in my notes. It was pretty much like you were reading my notes out aloud. It was exactly what I, I kind of believe and I'm firmly of the opinion. And, and I should say, you know, as hard as this is for a City fan to say this about the United manager, I think he has, you know, he's proved me wrong. He's been excellent um, and they've had an excellent season. But I'm still firmly of the opinion that he won't last the distance at United. But what I will say is, whoever that successor is who comes in after him will be extremely grateful for the work he's done because he's mocked up after several managers there who have looked for instant remedies and ignored foundations and what he's put in place now. You know, you, you can build from what they've got there now. So, um, okay, so that's the top four kind of dealt with. And next on to a club who really should have been in that earlier discussion. They should have finished in the top four. Um Leicester's recent tailspin has been staggering. And um, just staying with you, Harry, was this a case of reality eventually biting for Leicester, or is this on Brendan Rodgers? Um, I think injuries were, were more the problem than Rodgers personally. Right. But if you lose, if you lose um, Madison and you lose Pereira in particular for the length of time they did. For example, I, I watched them against Newcastle on New Year's Day. They won three 0 Newcastle were abject as, as they have been most of the season, but Leicester were at it and they were and they were very good it was like you know they looked like a Champions League team it wasn't even it was a foregone conclusion at that point that they would be in the top four because nobody saw what happened coming injuries and the lack of experience I guess as well because if you look at the the sort of trend of things like this happening big drop, drops off it happening in Premier League history in title races or whatever it's a lack of experience that ends up killing that that you know that aim, that dream, you know, yeah. if you look at Newcastle in 96 or Liverpool in 2014, the title races, the reason that they were pegged back is because they were against teams that are much more experienced in terms of what they, what the, you know, in terms of what they, they, they're aiming for. Manchester United and Chelsea, 
they have they were they're young and inexperienced teams to a degree of young and experienced managers, but the culture of challenging and and going for those for those spots is there at Leicester. It isn't so these things can catch up with you, especially when they're given the catalyst by injuries to to two absolutely key players. I think Madison, um, you know, there was all the talk of Madison going everywhere, you know, going everywhere, Manchester United, Man City, Arsenal, wherever in uh, in in the summer after up until January until he got injured and. Pereira's proved himself to be a brilliant fullback, and yeah. you know, the, the, and and Vardy's dropping form as well. There's just a lot of different factors, but I think inexperience proved in the end to be an issue. Yeah, do you um, do you go along with that, Ryan? Would you put it down to injuries? Um, I, I do see on on social media a lot, particularly from Liverpool fans who obviously would know about this, that this has been typical Brendan Rodgers. I'm not fully clued up on that. I wasn't really aware that, that was a, a Brendan Rodgers trait. That kind of you know. He fell away towards the end, or bottled it, or you know, I hate that term. But um, can that be attributed to Leicester in any way, or is it unfair really to look at the manager considering how brilliantly we're in the first half of the season? Um, I've always felt that the majority of Liverpool fans' assessment of of Rodgers and his time at the club is a little bit harsh, to be honest. So yeah. um, I'm not sure I go along with that. I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of contributing factors to the way things ended for him there. Um, I think he's done a very good job at Leicester so far. I think they were performing above and beyond their what you'd expect of them in the first half of the season. As Harry mentioned, the injuries, you know, they lost one of the best right backs in the league and they lost one of their best emerging creative midfielders um, from a squad that isn't really doesn't have the depth to cope with losing two players of that quality. So there was gonna be a regression. I think there was a, an element of regressing to the mean, having overperformed uh, for so long. I think that, that regression kind of continued to go below the mean for a little bit, and it was a bit worrying for them. Um, but you know, uh, as much as I, I really would have liked to see Leicester get a top four spot just to mix things up a bit, yeah, um, they'd have taken fifth at the beginning of the season. It still, it still has to be considered a successful season, something they can build on. They've still got European football; uh, they can come back stronger next year. I still think. Rogers has done enough uh, to have earned the right to continue what he started there. Uh, yeah, I think they're in a good position. I think obviously it was a disappointing end to the season for them, but um, I think given time and space to reflect on on everything uh, they've achieved this year, I think Leicester fans can be uh, quite content with their lot. Well, that's a really interesting point actually, because um, I think quite often in football we're looking at a club from the outside looking in. Um, and, and we see, you know, Leicester having this tailspin and think, God, the fans must be kind of beside themselves. But, you know, I saw on, on Twitter Joe Bruin, who's um, one of the editors at 442, who's a Leicester fan, saying that had they got Champions League football with, you know, Leicester significantly upgraded and added strength and depth, they most likely would have gone out the group stage. Whereas now in the Europa League, they can have just, you know, a load of fun, basically, and, and you know, have a, a great kind of European adventure. And, um, that's something that wouldn't particularly have occurred to me not being a Leicester fan, but I'm, yeah, I can see that. I can absolutely see that. So, right, so below Leicester or did one of these clubs finish above Leicester? I'm not sure, but both Arsenal and Spurs came under new management um, in 2019-20 and each coach has had several months in charge to implement their plans. Um, Ryan, who showed the most progress, do you think? If you Would you be happier now as a Spurs fan or an Arsenal fan with your with your coach? That's a very interesting question, and I'm not sure what the answer is. To be honest, um, <laughs> you can see it from both both sides of the coin, can't you? Uh, I think Mourinho did well to claw things back when they looked like um, it looked like he was on the brink, didn't it? Just just a few yeah. weeks ago, it looked like he he 
quote unquote lost the dressing room yet again and um, <laughs> things were going to tailspin for him and it was going to end in the usual way you know the, the whole Mourinho experience over the last couple of years has become accelerated the, what used to happen across the course of three seasons has come to happen across the course of 12 to 18 months for him um, but yeah perhaps where where he hasn't been able to in the past it looks like he might have sort of clawed things back from the brink um, and started to get a real tune out of Spurs in his last few weeks he probably wouldn't have wanted the season to end when it did um, on the whole to to have uh, picked up the club where they were and taken them to sixth that, that's not bad going um, you know this is coming from somebody um, who thought Mourinho was you know, certainly past his best and perhaps even a man out of time um, he kind of refused was too obstinate to to kind of move with the times with his style of man management, I, I didn't really think it could, it could, it could glean such good results in, in this day and age. Um, and maybe it's just a short term hop, and they will again um, start to, to, to fall backwards. But uh, you've got to give credit where credit's due. He has turned things around there. Uh, but if you're talking about the long term health of, of um, the clubs under their managers, I think at this stage there might be a little bit more upside to Arteta uh, given um, the way he'll look to sort of implement a style and which mm. is something that Arsenal fans have always well certainly since the Wenger era um, have, have been proud about and something they've always prized um, and I think he will do that uh, whether he'll be a success uh, only, only time will tell he's got that grounding in the in Guardiola way and you can see the the echoes of that through the way that they're trying to play at the moment, they're still desperately inconsistent and capable of, you know, just <laughs> typical Arsenal collapses or what have come typical Arsenal collapses. They're, they're terrible at the back at times still. Um, but there's a kernel of something there. Um, so it's going to be a really interesting season for them next year. Um, I would be surprised and, you know, I think Arsenal fans would be desperately disappointed if they finished as low as eighth again next year. Um, it will require a bit of investment. There are, there are big holes in their squad. They've bought pretty badly for the most part over the last few years. So there's, there's definitely work to be done at, at both clubs. There's still a long way to go to get back into that top four for them. Because like we said, United and, and Chelsea have kind of found their rhythm and found their, their groove in that top four now. And they're going to take some uh, some stopping to get to get back out of that so yeah as to who's in the better position going forward um, it's kind of neck and neck but for for very different reasons I'd say well you mentioned uh, the style there at Arsenal Harry how much does it matter that there's a lack of style under Mourinho at Spurs I mean they, they were good to watch you know under Pochettino as a neutral I'd happily tune in and watch Spurs and these days it just seems to be so nullifying so sterile and if I was a Spurs fan, that would concern me. Would that concern you, or, or are they right to be concerned about that? Yeah, I think they are, um, because you know Pochettino is the best manager that they've had, certainly in the modern era that they've had. And yeah. you know, <laughs> I think that they took for granted what he brought them. To be honest, by the time by by the time that they got rid of him, and you know, it was stale, and and maybe he didn't want to be there. I don't know, but I think. At the very least, they, they, he'd earned the right to be asked if he wanted to do a sort of uh, Ferguson-style rebuild, you know, have his opportunity to go and do what he'd, you know, um, to go and change the change the system, change the players, whatever. He had the he deserved the opportunity to do that. Whereas they they went for Mourinho, who's a quick fit, who's seen as a quick fix and a, an instant win, winner. But I, I see more problems with Mourinho than solutions nowadays because mm. of 
what's happened at the end of Real Madrid, at the end of Chelsea, at the end of Manchester. That's three clubs in a row that basically the same things happened at the end. So it's kind of, and to get rid of your best manager to do that, you know, put it this way. I think if I was giving, of the two managers that you're asking me about, Arteta and Mourinho, if I was giving one, if I had more faith in the other five years down the line, who would be in a better position and they, and they both have the same amount of money and whatever to spend. I would back Arteta because he's fresh. He, he looks like he's implementing the the style he wants. He, he looks like he's, um, you know, calm and, and he's got all the right attributes as, as a coach. He's unproven, but he's, he's, he's looks like he's taken the right steps. Mourinho just looks like a ticking time bomb that could go off any minute. He's done well. Credit where credit is, Ryan said, for the end of the season. They've been very... They were very efficient towards the end of the campaign, especially after that Bournemouth game where they were all, it just looked like you know another quick end to that sort of Mourinho thing. And I I just don't trust Mourinho, I don't trust Mourinho anymore, whereas I used to think of him as just this guy who would just win. When he was at Inter and at the start of Real Madrid and after that, you know, even the first season at Chelsea, he was just a guy who would, or second season, sorry, when he won the league. He was a guy who just come in and make teams win and it didn't matter. But now... The style matters because there's no guarantee that at the end yeah. you're going to be the team that you want to be. And that's the problem, I think, with Mourinho. That's, especially when you throw in the fact that they got rid of Pochettino to do that. I think that I think if I was a Spurs fan, I'd be quite disappointed. Well, one thing we, we can say about Mourinho, one plus for all of us, is it's going to make for a really good Amazon documentary that's coming out soon. So I can't wait for that. I've seen a couple of clips and... One's quite sweet, really, isn't it? Have you seen the clip of a Haribo and kind of Deli Ali giving a Haribo to um, Eric Dyer? But then the other clip I've seen is Mourinho kind of using the C word and kind of, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting documentary, that. Right, let's move down to mid-table. Um, I'll stay with you, Harry, because mid-table brings forth Newcastle and I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about your club. And then today it transpires that the Saudi consortium have pulled out, um, apparently from kind of losing patience in, in the kind of procedure, uh, and the takeover is off. Um, so your kind of thoughts on this? Yeah, um, I, I, we were talking off air a little bit, and I think that it's it's um, demoralising for the fans. And I've written a piece on this. Hopefully I'll find a home for it. That's the life of being a freelancer. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, that that um, you know that you know forget the controversy and all these valid points that have been made about this bid and all the human rights issues, the um, piracy issues, all those things that you know, setting them aside for a second, thinking of the fans, Newcastle fans have spent years and years false, you know, waiting for Mike Ashley to leave, and the false dawns have come from the fact that there's been loads of rumours of a breakthrough in talks of of a deal being agreed and it's never transpired, and Newcastle fans have believed that Mike Ashley is the problem. Getting him to agree to a deal and actually wanting to sell has been the issue. He's done that now. He's agreed. He's taken a £17 million non-refundable deposit, which I'm sure makes him pretty happy that he, he gets that anyway tonight. Um, but he's taken that. He he is he is wiped, washed his hands of the club. He's ready to go. And still, there's a there's a different barrier in, in place. And Newcastle fans have to live with that now. Come back and it's, it's just demoralising knowing that they have to if if they're gonna if there's gonna be a new owner they have to go through all that process again and there's no trust in the Premier League that this fit and proper person's test or the O and D test or whatever it's called is going to take the thirty days that they seem to suggest it will because it's taken five months 
because of the controversies, which are absolutely fine and absolutely right that they should be raised. And I've not been very happy with the way that some Newcastle supporters have behaved in the face of what looks like it could be perceived as sports washing from certain Mm. propaganda things on social media and things like that. And the sort of geopolitical thing, and I was saying to you on off air that I'm just, we're talking about the World Trade Organization and piracy and being sports, all these things that we shouldn't care about because of that. And that's all because of this bid. So I can understand some people who are quite relieved that that's all going to go away, even though Ashley's staying and have the faith that, that, you know, that the next deal is, is just around the corner. But we've heard the next deal is just around the corner for 13 years and he's still here. So in, if, if I can understand from both, from both sides, um, the, the fans are, are just, you know, it's, it, it, I can't imagine how a lot of that. I, I mean, I feel like it, but as a journalist, I've sort of been able to pull myself away from that and look a bit objectively. But uh, for a lot of supporters, I mean, there, there were there were messages um, from MPs to the Premier League tell, in the northeast telling the people that that the Premier League, that, that this weight was affecting people's mental health and things like that because they live for football is all that really matters, especially in times like this, like where there's so much uncertainty in life in life anyway. Football and this and this excitement that this what this takeover could bring, and having that that dream taken away, it's, it's very difficult for people to to accept. Yeah, um, Ryan, um, as a non Newcastle fan, did you feel uneasy about the prospect of this kind of takeover going through, given you know the kind of human rights record out in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I, um, I don't think it's it's great for the health and, and uh, consciousness of the game to. Um, be attached to regimes like that. Um, so, so to interrupt, but were you also kind of simultaneously kind of sympathetic to Newcastle as well? And what, you know, because for me, it was kind of such a double-edged sword. I, I felt exactly the same way, but I, I also kind of wanted to take over to go through so Newcastle fans can experience, you know, the riches, what would come with it. Yeah, no, of course. Just to put on um, record as well, I feel the same way as that. I thought <laughs> Yeah, um, no, that, that's uh, no, that's uh, that's that's absolutely true. There's been a lot of um, already columns written saying that you know, in the long run, this is going to be a good thing for Newcastle. And I think that's very easy. And while I do agree with that, I think it's it's very easy for people like myself and fellow non-Newcastle fans to say that. Mm. Um, it's probably much harder for Newcastle fans to to believe and to stomach that after all they've been through over the last thirteen years. Um, so I can I can I totally empathise with their disappointment, and I, I'm sure it is very difficult to see the bigger picture on this one for them um, especially as Ashley was gearing up for a sale at last and um, what little investment he has been putting into the club over the last few years um, he was preparing to make absolutely zero <laughs> ahead of next season because he thought he was going to be washing his hands of the club so I imagine he'll be re- he'll be re- even more reluctant than usual to dip into his pocket that could be very dangerous for Newcastle if another bid doesn't materialise quite soon um, so yeah it's, it's, it's a difficult pill to swallow for, for Newcastle fans and I do I certainly empathise with them Okay, um, we had planned to talk about the kind of relegated sides, but I mean, frankly, we can look at them and it's all much the same as regards to Bournemouth and Norwich with kind of you know injuries they had Norwich at the start of the season, Bournemouth throughout the season, um, lack of goal goals from the team as well. Um, Pukki at one stage looked like he could keep Norwich up single handedly. Uh, as soon as his goals dried up, they, they were doomed essentially. Um, Bournemouth did have a single player who reached double figures. Watford, now that's a different discussion. Uh, four managers, you're not going to stay up by having four managers. You know, I appreciate the present one's interim. 
Um, so let's, let's kind of move past that and just say that the three clubs ultimately weren't good enough because what I really want to know from the two of you, um, who should we start with? Let's start with you, Ryan. Your Premier League Player of the Year, please, sir. Okay. Um, yeah, it's Kevin De Bruyne for me. Um, hey. <laughs> and, yeah, and to be honest, it wasn't particularly close. As we discussed at the top of the show, um, Liverpool have been, have been remarkable this year. They've been they've been ruthless um, on an individual level. I think their best players were probably a little bit better last season. Um, mm. while, while you know Van Dijk has been very good again, Salah's keeps scoring goals. Mane's been uh, probably the most outstanding attacking player. Um, I think they were all a little bit, little bit better last season. Um, I, I don't agree that Henderson's really in the, in the discussion, to be honest. Um, I know he won the FWA award. Um, so yeah, if, we, if we're taking it purely on performances, um, I know the FWA award does take into consideration other factors outside of football. Um, yeah. uh, and full disclosure, at the time the vote launched, um, I voted very quickly, and I voted for Marcus Rashford based on on what right. he was doing okay, yeah. for the pitch. Yeah. Um, he did have a very good at the time, particularly was having a very good personal season, and then what he went and did, and the way he affected so many people's lives off the pitch. Yeah. Um, considering that that is a factor in the FWA voting, that 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 was enough for me to, to vote for him, and that's I think why he has finished in the top three or four for that. But if we're looking purely on performances, it, it's De Bruyne. Um, yeah, and it's not particularly close. I think he's the best midfielder in the world. He's the best player in the league, and uh, he. Despite City's uh, regression on the whole, it, it, I mean, you're no better than me. It, it might be his best season. It's certainly certainly up there, isn't it? In terms of um, stats, yeah, 20 assists is, is unbelievable. And, and I saw a video the other day on, on Twitter of the amount of kind of, you know, chances he's created, which were spooned over the bar or kind of, you know, um, wasted. He could have had double that amount. I mean, yeah, and these, I'm talking about chances on a plate as well for the likes of Jesus. So it could have been even better. Um, so he, unsurprisingly, uh, to the two of you, Kevin De Bruyne gets my vote too. Um, Harry, who's your player of the year? Again, full disclosure, I didn't vote for De Bruyne for the FWA. I voted for Henderson because of the reasons that we've spoken about. I think um, the, the presetting example thing that Ryan uh, alluded to there was was heavily put forward as, as in the in the yes. you know the, yeah. when when they when they gave you a voting slip and they said it's you know make, you know consider it and things and I think if you put what he did during lockdown I, I thought about you know I, I got wrapped up in that emotion thing I thought about Rashford as well um, the lockdown thing of the NHS and the especially the background of what Matt Hancock was saying at the time the way that Henderson stood up there was brilliant uh, and I also think on the pitch he he didn't have a standout game but when he wasn't there you could see the difference so that's what swung it for me on the in, in the FWA award. But if I'm going purely on a bursary, then De Bruyne by a country mile because yeah. he is the best player in the Premier League by a country mile in my view. Um, I was right behind the goal he scored against Newcastle in November, and I've, I've, it, it just took my breath away because it, <laughs> it was so difficult to do that because his body isn't in the right angle to do it, and he just gets his foot above the ball, but he doesn't just get it so it dips. I mean, it just arrows off the bar and as soon as you hit it, if you hit it, you think it's in. Um, it's just perfect and that, and I could watch him all day and I think, but he's he's not just a, a player you would call a luxury player. He he can, he, he, he he's tailor-made for the Premier League as well. He's kind of that ideal and that's what's re- really quite funny, I think, about the fact that Jolie Mourinho got rid of him at Chelsea is he's developed into this player who's kind of the ideal 
Mourinho creative player where he's creative, but he can also do, you know, he can also look after himself. He's also industrious. He'll work hard. He's not just someone you can just who he'll, who he'll, he'll just turn up for one game and then not the next. So I I think and and also on the assist check, I kind of think he kind of did that. You're right. He could have got so many more. It didn't. It didn't even dawn on me that he'd that he'd got twenty assists because he got eighteen two years ago. So yeah. you know he, he's 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 up there for that record every time, and he's just brilliant. So if you're asking me on on performance, just purely on who's the best player in the league, then De Bruyne about a country mile, yeah. Well, you say about his kind of industriousness, etc. There, I mean, for me, he's got a lot of Gerard qualities to him as well. Mm. So you know, it's kind of two players in one. I mean, we're incredibly blessed to have him because you know he, he creates these extraordinary moments. Um, sometimes just a, a pass that will just take your breath away, but he does that on a regular basis, which is the benchmark of a special player. But he also drives the team on and kind of you know, leads by example, and, and that's very much a, a Gerard quality. So, um, yeah, it's like having two players in one. Um, okay, let's look at the, the kind of other side of the coin. Um, Harry, you won't be kind of impressed with, with my choice for um, the biggest flop. I'll Shall I go first and I'll just get out of the way and, and I'll suffer your rafter? Um I've gone for Joel Linton. And but there is a caveat which I it's not his fault. Um he was predominantly a wide player at Hoffenheim, um, or at least kind of used to come in from wide positions. I think he's been used incorrectly as a target man. He's not an out and out target man. And given the fact that Ashley of all people spent forty million pounds on him, just put a shed load of hype on the lad. So everyone in football thought, right, well this is a guaranteed twenty a goal a season striker. So I don't think he's been as bad as what, you know, he's been made out to be. But when I thought of, of the biggest flop of the season, he was the player that came to mind. Um, Harry, who was yours? Joe Linton. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> really? Absolutely. Because um, the, the, the Joe Linton thing, because he's 40 million and he isn't a, a central player, but it isn't his fault. And um, he's sort of become a target for Newcastle fans, which is unfair. I always refer to this uh, this quote by Julian Nagelsmann where he said he's an animal so there must be a player in there and he's looked much better when he's played on the left um, but the reason I think he's he he is the biggest flop is because he represents why Newcastle had such a diabolical season even though they were on, on in the table part of last season because in February last year uh, Newcastle took his name to, to Rafa Benitez and said we want this guy uh, we're prepared to pay forty million for him. Benita said no, he's worth twenty. Looked at him straight away and said no, he's worth. He's not worth forty million. Ashley then doubled down and said, "I'll give you twenty million of my own cash to make this deal happen." Uh, and and Rafa said no, and then they chose Joe Linton over Rafa. So it, it and it really and then and then they put him in the. They just basically having rejected Rondon because he was too old for the entirety of last season, they just plonked Joe Linton to Rondon's role when he clearly wasn't suited to it. So it really, yeah. quite, it's, it's created this sort of like, this sort of belief in the Newcastle fan base that there must be some sort of deal that's done here with a, back, a backwards agent or whatever um, as to why he, he, he joined Newcastle because why would you spend 40 million, double what you've ever spent on any other player, put him above keeping the most important person at the club at the time and the best manager they've had in years and then play him in the wrong position. It just makes no sense. None of it makes any sense. So absolutely Joe Linton because but but again it's not really his fault. And I really want I, I want what I want to happen at Newcastle is um 
is for him to be taken the number nine taken off him and introduce later on the left and to buy a proper striker and then and then we might see a much better version of him. Absolutely. Here, here. Um okay, Ryan, who's your kind of biggest flop of the year? Um I know it's not his first season in the club, it's the second. Um but I've gone for Kepa. Kepa is a Malaga yeah, because yeah, it's been um, I, I considered yeah. the hair as well, so it's been a bad year for yeah, Spanish goalkeepers, yeah. Yes. Considering how many great Spanish goalkeepers have been over the last decade and a half, um, it's not a vintage uh, period for them <laughs> at the moment. But yeah, Kepa, just looking at the stats at the moment on fbref.com, um, for the most part, I consider goal, goalkeeper stats worthless, but there are two that I think are worth looking at. One is is the basic save percentage. Uh, Kepa ranks last in the league for that. Um, right. Every other shot he faces goes in. He has a save percentage of 54, 55%, so basically every other shot he faces goes in. Um, the other one is the more complicated advanced metric of post-shot XG differential. So that's... Um, Post-shot XG is like normal XG, but it takes into consideration uh, what part of the goal a shot lands on. So not only is it looking at where the shot is taken from, but also what part of the goal it's aimed at um, to give you a value of how likely that that goal is to go in. Um, So uh, he's effectively, based on his post-shot XG differential, the goals he conceded up against his post-shot XG, the goals you'd expect him to see concede based on the quality of shots he's faced. He's let in, he's been responsible essentially. His his lack of shot-stopping ability has uh, resulted in an extra 9.2 goals uh, going in, which is of the 37 keepers who've received minutes in the Premier League this year, he ranks 37th for that. So, uh, yeah, he's, 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 he's pretty well for. Well, there's absolutely no argument with that, is there? I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's people listening in who are kind of, you know, dubious about certain stats, but there are stats where they're just there, set in stone, you can't deny that. That's, um, yeah, that's shocking in itself, isn't it? What about, um, let's stick with a negative for now and, and uh, just touch on the club that has most disappointed you. Um, I'll stay with you, Ryan. What clubs kind of let, let you down the most this year? So uh, there were three um, taking the season as a whole. I think um, I know I spoke uh, relatively um, well of of uh, Arteta and the work he's doing at Arsenal um, at the beginning of the show, but uh, their season as a whole to finish eighth for a club of Arsenal's size and wealth is is nowhere near good enough. Um, so they're they're in there, and then it's the perennial um, underachievers, uh, the perennial disappointments of Everton and West Ham. It seems that no matter, no matter how much money they chuck at their problems, they just seem to never be able to get it right. Um, you know, Everton as well. If appointed Carlo Ancelotti, you guys won the Champions League three times, uh, and <laughs> they're still. They're still where they're always going to be. I feel sorry for them because yeah. it seems like there's nothing, nothing they can do. They just can't can't quite get it right. So, yeah, Everton and West Ham, considering how much they spent, the quality of their players they've got, they should be higher than they, than they are. West Ham should never have been in a relegation scrap. Um, you know, they're, they're, they've got deep flaws in their squad, but there's also a lot of quality in there, a, a lot of um, you know, people who've done very well elsewhere, and they just can't seem to put it together the, the, the sum of the parts is always so much greater than the, than the, the value of the whole for, for West Ham and Everton yeah I mean it was fashionable wasn't it back in August to tip West Ham for the top six and mm-hmm. I, I did it myself and yet whilst I was doing it you know when you just know you're making a mistake as you're saying it <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's West Ham there is just and a mentality issue it runs right through that club from top to bottom there is just some mentality issue there where I, I personally believe you're going to need you know, a real strong manager to go in there and just change the club and the whole approach and philosophy of that club, you know, wholesale. Um, 
Yeah, because I think just always do it, don't they? they should, like, as you said, Ryan, they should know be nowhere near the bottom um, bottom six, but they were. Um, okay, Harry, who was your club that really kind of let you down? Newcastle always let me down, and that's quite something <laughs> in a way. But but having said that, if you take what you what was just been said about West Ham and Everton, they're sort of like the flip of the coin. So Newcastle are always saying that well, if we spend more money, then we'd be brilliant. And then you look at Everton and West Ham and think, actually, that's what can go wrong. <laughs> so the, yeah. the, the, there is that. I think Villa, for the for similar reasons, although they don't have the quality, but spending 100 and whatever it was, £40 million, pounds, like Fulham the year before, and not getting out of a relegation battle, or at least being more con- convincing than narrowly avoiding it on the final day is disappointing in a sense. But, you know, if, if you come up, I guess you, you, you're always likely to, there's a possibility that you'll be in the, in the bottom, in the bottom five, um, but yeah, I, I do. I think that the the same the same clubs have, have been mentioned there. Really, I mean, Bournemouth in a sense because, but I know you mentioned Bournemouth earlier and said that you know they they, they have a, and of course, but they, they've spent a lot of money and there's this whole big thing about eighty one million that they still owe back on players and things. This fairy tale story that Bournemouth are isn't really it doesn't really stack up when you think about that and you think about spending. 15 million on Jordan Ibe and um, and 19 million on on Dominic Solanke and things like that. Yeah, yeah. They they are they you know the only big sign they've made that's progressed them is I think um, is Nathan Ake and obviously he's going to go to Man City and he's you know he's a very good very very good player. So Bournemouth in a way I mean the, what happened with Bournemouth was that they they've always conceded goals they just stopped scoring them and that's what happened, that's why they went down. So. I think they've disappointed me because they, they, their problems have been sort of like building up. Despite this whole sort of narrative of them being this small club that's punched above their weight, I actually think that they've actually their problems have just have just like a lot of clubs have just caught up with them a bit like Swansea's did, a bit like yeah, absolutely. A few years ago, Sunderland's have done in the past. Their problems just caught up with them, and, and the fact that Eddie Howe, I really like Eddie Howe, but the fact that he didn't do enough, in my opinion, to really change things. Because you can, because and you know, people say he's sticking to his philosophy. But there are things you can do to stick to your philosophy and also deal with defensive issues. And if he's sticking to his philosophy, why didn't they score enough goals? So, I think Bournemouth is a, is a, is a good shout because they, because the whole narrative surrounding them is a little bit bogus, in my opinion. Well, I, I completely agree. I think Eddie Howe's kind of spending record has probably cost him uh, a move to a, a bigger club. Um, and yeah, I think he's been too loyal to certain players. Uh, I think at first it was a positive and then it turned into a negative because you're looking at kind of four or five players there who really are championship level players. And it started to show and it was always going to show as the seasons went on. Uh, and, and he didn't evolve. Um, and I think the same could be said of Charlton looking back in the day. You know, Charlton used to be lavish with praise. It used to be called the Charlton model, didn't it? Of how to survive in the Premier League. But I remember the last two seasons, uh, one where they struggled, I think, and then the last season where they went down. And I was so kind of frustrated at looking at Charlton thinking, no, now's the time to start changing who you are, to no longer, you know, kind of portray yourself and think of yourself as this kind of small club punching above their weight. Because you're not now, you've been in the top flight for several seasons. You know, you've got some kind of, you can attract decent players. You've got a bit of money in the bank. And I think Bournemouth's just done exactly the same. Um, right, sorry, I wasn't expecting to run a little cherries rant there, but there we go. Uh, Ryan, your club of the year to end, uh, to end on a high. My club of the year is, um, 
surprise, surprise, it's Liverpool. Um, for what we discussed earlier, the, yeah. the, to being able to maintain that level, they're rightful champions. And after 30 years of pent-up frustration and tension, they've finally located the release valve and it's... Uh, and you know you can see the whole kind of you can feel the city's just shoulders relaxing collectively you know they've finally got one of Cray for so long and it's, it's something they've been building towards um, from the moment Klopp took over there um, and yeah they've done it incrementally they've spent big at times when they've needed to but they've done it on the right players and it's just been a, a testament to the to the whole operation, really, how, how well they've, they've put things together, uh, the holistic approach they've taken to, to what they do. Um, and yeah, and everything that, that the managers implemented and, and the players have executed, they deserve enormous credit for it. They're, they're, they've got the second highest points tally in Premier League history. Um, it might have felt like a, a bit of a kind of a, a slightly underwhelming end to the season the way it did uh, because they won it so far out and um, they were less than spectacular for a few weeks at the end there but um, yeah no that overall they've been great you can't take away what they've achieved and um, yeah uh, it's City's job to try and get back to where they were now and try and challenge that uh, so yeah they've, they've you know they've raised raised their bar uh, they've they've matched the levels that cities have set over the last couple of years in terms of uh, the ruthlessness and the points that you, that you need to accumulate to win the league these days and uh, they deserve a lot of credit for that well, yeah, I can't argue with any of that. It's from, from August to February, they were a little short of astonishing Liverpool. Um, I'd put Sheffield United up there, but it would be unfair to not give this kind of um, accolades to Liverpool. Uh, Harry, who would you go for? Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say Sheffield United. I think they, we haven't spoken about them, and they definitely deserve a mention because yeah. the, the given what the, the height that they reached, I mean, literally a couple of weeks after the few weeks after that ghost goal against. Um, Villa that ended up costing Bournemouth. Um, they were if, if there was a point where if they if they won that game they would have been on par with the top four and that was only three or four weeks before the end of the season. They they ended up tailing off, but what Chris Wilde has done there is just absolutely remarkable. He has that sort of there's a sort of aura that a certain manager has. Certain managers have Eddie Howe had it at Bournemouth. Klopp's got it at uh, Liverpool. Had it. At, Dortmund, Simeone has it at Leco. You just think this club and this manager are perfectly suited. And if the if they ever sort of split, if they, if if Wilder ever goes somewhere else, I don't think he would ever quite get the same tune because yeah, it, it's to do with his his connection to that club. And they, I mean, he he's like a, a conductor, and his style of play is crazy. I just hope he he, he learns from what you were mentioning about teams that have been the style the way they've led the way you know Swansea were that and they went down yeah. Bournemouth now Southampton were that for years under Pochettino and Coombe and they have since or they haven't gone down they've since struggled and had to reinvent themselves so the, the, there has to be a, a continuity but given that everybody thought they would be where Norwich are everyone thought that they would just go straight back down then you have to say that you know given that you know they, they missed out on Europe and Possibly even the Champions League by by a whisker. At, some, at one point, it certainly looked like they could be genuine Champions League contenders, which is absolutely crazy. Considering he's not spent a penny really in comparison to other clubs, and and that the new cassette team was there in League One as well. It's not just that he's kept a style; it's the fact that he's kept that style, which is so unique. I mean, overlapping centre backs, and I've watched them a lot this season for work. I've, I've covered Sheffield United, and it's been an absolute joy. I don't know if he'll how long it'll last because these things as we mentioned with Guardiola and things like that in the past these these can 
these sort of moments can can run out if you don't adapt. And I hope it, I hope they adapt because um, you know they've been a real plus for the Premier League this season. I agree with what has been said about Liverpool that relentlessness and you know you can't really give it to Man City, but you know at their peak they've still been fantastic this season. Um, they just haven't done it consistently enough. But for me, Sheffield now definitely have to have a mention. Okay, lads. Well, thank you very much. I think we've wrapped up the Premier League pretty well there. Um, before we go, um, listeners might want to look out on Amazon for the next big thing, which is Ryan's book. Um, what, what interests me about this? I mean, firstly, would you like to tell the kind of listeners what it's about? Yeah, so um, it's basically it's a look at the different pitfalls that, that young footballers can face uh, through the, the stories of 15 um, young players who were tipped for the top and playing for elite clubs around uh, around Europe, but for different reasons didn't quite make it. So it's all about the reasons why they didn't make it, what got in their way, um, and, and, and you know, just a, a look at all the different ways that can happen, and then also the personal side of it and how that affects a young person, how they deal with it and how they get over it. Um, so, yeah, the, the players from clubs like uh, Liverpool, um, Inter Milan, Ajax, uh, a few from Everton, um, four from Man United. There was obviously the, the, the biggest example would be uh, Michael Johnson, who was someone I, I did I try to get for the yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, I remember speaking to you about it at the time. You gave me a couple of tips for ways to try and get get through, but you, you, I just wouldn't have been ready to, to speak to me at the time. I don't think um, yeah. I just got stonewalled whenever I tried. But it's that kind of thing. It's players of that ilk who are. Had, a, had seemed to have the world at their feet, uh, but but often for, through no fault of their own. Sometimes through the mistakes, the folly of youth, injuries. Um, there's you know there's addiction in there. There's there's just the pure luck of timing and misfortune of timing. All those different things that can go wrong for a young player and that can um, set them off course and, and 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 what can lead to them never recovering. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite a, a, a difficult read at times, but it's eye opening and I think um, it's positive in, in, in the way that the majority of the players I spoke to because they were at a stage where they felt ready to share their stories. It's, it's good to learn about how they recovered and how um, you know they went about their life thereafter. Um, so there are uplifting sides to it too. Well, it's it's heartily recommended, and like I say, it's available on Amazon. So you know, all out there, you know, give it a, give it a go. And and look, we're in lockdown. We want th- good things to read, and this is like a really interesting read. It's a no brainer. And um, thank you very much for jo- joining us today, Ryan. No, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you very much, Harry. Cheers. Really, really enjoyed it. Ah, pleasure. Thank you. And um, so that's all, folks. Another season has come and gone. Only this time, someone pressed pause just as it's getting really interesting. Overall, it's been a fascinating year of triumphs and failures and near misses. And frankly, we miss it already. Don't worry, though. The SPL starts again this weekend. As always, take care of yourself and each other and forever up the blues.